0: Welcome to On Opinion, the Paliya Podcast. I'm Turi Munti. We live in opinionated times. Culture wars, identity politics, polarisation. Everyone has an opinion. But do we know where our opinions come from? Do we know why we think what we think? In each episode, I'll talk to experts across all disciplines to help us understand the nature of opinion, how we form ideas, why we argue and what that means for society. Today, we're thrilled to be talking to Jan Werner Muller, who is a political philosopher and historian of political ideas working at Princeton. He's also the author of What is Populism? Which is what we're going to be talking about today. Jan Werner, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Can I kick off? with the most obvious question of all, which is why populism is such a very dangerous thing.
1: So there's still a widespread view that populism perhaps isn't actually all that dangerous. It's very often said that populism is mainly about people being critical um, of elites or somehow being angry with the establishment. If it were just that, I would say it's not particularly dangerous. In fact, any old civics textbook would tell us that keeping an eye on the powerful is actually, you know, possibly a democratic virtue. However, populists, in my view, are never just critical of elites. Yes, when they're in opposition, they will say that, you know, the parties in government are very problematic, maybe corrupt, you know, things like that. But above all, they will also say that they, and only they, represent what populists typically call the real people, in quotation marks, or also very often the silent majority. Now, that might not sound so bad in and of itself either. It doesn't signify that they're necessarily racist or have a fanatical hatred of the European Union or anything like that. And nevertheless, this kind of claiming of a monopoly of representing the real people always does have, in my view, for democracy two highly problematic, you might say dangerous consequences. Um, One very obvious one is that populists will essentially claim that all other contenders for power fundamentally lack legitimacy. So this is never just about policy differences, or even disagreements about values, which after all is completely normal, ideally perhaps even productive in the democracy. In a sense, populists will always immediately make it personal and make it moral. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, on a less abstract plane, you might say that the kinds of things that Donald J. Trump said about his opponents, especially his opponent in the 2016 election, is very typical. Of what populists tend to do. They will simply say, you know, my opponents are corrupt, uh, crooked, to coin a phrase. Um, it's never just about substantive differences or, as I said, any value disagreements. So far, so obvious, maybe. Um, less obvious, perhaps, is the tendency then also to suggest that all those citizens, all those, if you like, among the people themselves who do not share the populist's vision of the supposedly real people, the kind of symbolic construction of who the people really are, and who therefore also usually don't support the populists politically, that with all those citizens, you can essentially put into question whether they truly belong to the people at all. And again, Trump is a good example. In, uh, in 2016, at, at one campaign rally, uh, he basically, I'm quoting from memory, said, Uh, The only thing that matters is is the people and everybody else doesn't really doesn't really matter. The point is the populist decides who the real people are, who truly belongs and who doesn't. And whether you happen to have an American passport, a British passport, etc. That's not the decisive issue. The decisive issue is whether you belong to that supposedly real people. So long story short. I think what matters about populism is not anti-elitism. Any of us can criticize elites, doesn't mean we're necessarily right, but this is not in and of itself dangerous and quite possibly it's the opposite. What is specific about populism and what is dangerous for democracy is anti-pluralism. It's the conjuring up of a homogeneous people where some people, some citizens are bound to be excluded. And exclusion, my last sentence on this, is basically the trademark I would say of populists, obviously at the level of party politics where they oppose all other contenders for power, less obviously at the level of the people themselves where very often they incite hatred against uh, minorities, uh, malign particular groups as having no real standing and where they essentially always prove that even when they talk about unifying the people, Their real political business model is dividing the people.
0: Wow. Um, Can I take this extremely concise critique of populism and ask you to pull out some of the key strands? In your book, What is Populism? Um, You talk about a triptych of key features of populism and idea. You describe it as anti-elite, which you flagged just now anti-pluralist which you flagged just now and then a, a sort of an extreme form of identity politics which again you've just talked about in this conception almost mythical conception of the people can i ask you to go through those three key features as a way of grounding what we understand as populism
1: so let me focus on the third one in particular i think i've already kind of hinted uh what i mean by anti-elitism and was trying to underline that it's not enough to be anti-elitist at the same time maybe also worth flagging it's also not true that populists in power somehow necessarily have to cease being anti-elitist this is sometimes said that it sort of becomes a contradiction in terms that you know once you have the levers of power you can't criticize you know the powerful anymore or any elites because you yourself have become the elite. That's not quite correct. Um, essentially, no populist in government has ever ran out of scapegoats or of, you know, conjuring up further shadowy international elites who are somehow preventing them from implementing the people's, the people's proper, proper will. So the anti-elitism can run all the way through. Um, the same is true of the anti-pluralism. So the tendency to suggest a homogeneous real people with the added element that some are always going to be excluded from that vision. So the, the people who, let's say, happen to have you know, a particular passport are never the real people. It's always a subset. And that's always a kind of symbolic suggestion of who the real people, or for that matter, the silent majority actually actually are. Now about the third one, maybe it's it's important to underline that yes, populists will construct a particular homogeneous identity, and they will derive political and, in a sense, also moral claims from that vision. But I hasten to add, in light of the fact that there is so much criticism of so-called identity politics on the left today. I mean, you know, you know, all the stuff about you know, supposedly cancel culture is taking over the world. Uh, this is a new kind of moralism. It's very dangerous, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I hasten to add that a lot of the phenomena which are nowadays also referred to as identity politics, such as Black Lives Matter and Me Too, should not be put into the same category. In other words, I'm not suggesting that, oh, any talk of identity is inherently dangerous for democracy, or we're always sort of on the slippery slope towards populism if if you talk about identity at all. There's been a tendency, especially among in the broader sense liberal observers to make a sort of gesture where they say oh it's it's really bad that you know trump did white identity politics but the left is also really bad in terms of you know spreading cancel culture on the campus etc and i think that's a mistake yes you can find you can find examples of this sort of uh, radical left wing politics in favor of minorities maybe having a wrong strategy or suggesting a sort of slippage from strategic essentialism where you appeal to particular groups but being fully aware that these are not really sort of you know given or constitutive identities but ones that have a history where you slip to from that to something that that becomes more problematic but broadly speaking it can be perfectly okay to appeal to particular group identities when it comes to the oppressed who you know need to talk about the history of their own oppression, who have already been singled out by oppressors. So to then tell people on the left, broadly speaking, that, oh no, don't do any of this because this is also identity politics, I think is a mistake. Now, last thing i say on this is that of course, it's also true, and you, you may object along these lines, that of course, part of the trick that right-wing populists have often played is to suggest to some of their followers that they are also a kind of oppressed. Well, not really minority, but more like an oppressed majority. So you remember that Trump, for instance, sometimes explicitly said to uh, his audience at a rally, "You're all victims," um, which is rather strange when you when you compare that to previous previous uh, presidential rhetoric in the in the U.S. So in a sense, they are also kind of Trying to play a game of well, we can sort of create solidarity because we are, you know, the oppressed in certain in certain ways. We are being oppressed by so-called liberal cosmopolitan elites and so on. Except that empirically, that's a highly problematic statement. And very often, uh, the groups that are being appealed to are, of course, de facto privileged majorities. Not always. I mean, obviously, we have to look carefully and, and be, be careful about you know, the exact empirical contours of some of, these, some of these groups that are being appealed to. All I'm saying is, um, and maybe saying it too often, is that, that the, the point about exclusionary identity politics being associated with populism should not lead one to say, oh, and therefore everything that nowadays is labeled as identity politics is therefore pernicious and potentially dangerous for democracy.
0: They're different categories. Um, Jan Werner, can I repeat this back to you so that we anchor these three core ideas of yours around what populism is? The first is this critique of elites, essentially, and it can be it can be all the powerful, the shadowy powerful, foreigners, etc., but this sense of, of trying to blame shift to an external of some sort that's held the country, the people back. The second is this key feature of anti-pluralism. And anti-pluralism's problem you describe in the book. Is that in in a sense it denies um in denying diversity it amounts to denying lots of citizens of the state um the rights and freedoms that the majority has and the third is this particular form of identity politics which is not the identity politics which is fashionably critiqued today so much as an idea around the core identity of the people and i'm going to ask you to come back to this slightly harder the people in populist discourse is singular. It is an authentic people. It is, as you describe, morally pure. Um, you, you quote Ralph Darendorf as saying, populism is simple, democracy is complex. Can, we, can I ask you to now dive into this idea of the people that is manufactured by populist discourse?
1: Yes, so maybe it's worth pointing out that um, certainly the idea of the people that is being put forward by populists is simple, or you might even say simplistic on one level, because it's imagined as entirely homogeneous, as entirely morally pure as a kind of source of 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 wisdom. I mean, there aren't there, there have been other other anti pluralists in the history of ideas, so, you know, think of somebody like Lenin, uh, who, you know, wasn't exactly a very pluralistic kind of tolerant kind of guy, um, but who would never have said the people as such are a source of wisdom, on the contrary, the working class left to itself, you know, wouldn't even develop proper, you know, revolutionary consciousness it would only ever go as far as sort of a trade union consciousness, you know, to do with better wages and better working conditions and so on. So, the anti-pluralism in and of itself is not enough and neither is the anti-elitism. It's really the sort of con- this particular constellation of, of components that, that, that matters. But I also hasten to add, and here I would uh, slightly disagree with, with Ralph Darnoldoff who I otherwise admired in, in many ways. Um, I think it's too easy to say, as happens quite often, that we can automatically assume that whatever populists say or do is very simplistic Uh, or even worse that we can always assume that they are lying on one level and that they are necessarily associated with what you know nowadays is sometimes called uh, fake news but maybe should better be called disinformation Um, yes these can very these things can very often happen and there's a reason for that but it's not automatic and there's something dare i say slightly peculiar about the fact that again it's sometimes liberals uh who you know will precisely insist that oh the world is very complex but who at the same time you know would be very happy if we had you know a 280 character characterization of all populists at all times plus even better 140 character characterization of you know the kind of macro cause of the rise of populism everywhere uh, around around the world so in other words we shouldn't also make it too easy for ourselves by assuming that whatever they say is bound to be simplistic or that whatever they say is somehow a lie. What is a lie, I might, I might add, is this idea of a completely homogeneous people. There's no such thing. And there's also no such thing as claiming that you and only you are the authentic representative of their people. It's a profoundly anti-democratic kind of uh, kind of move to make. You basically are denying that there could ever be anything like legitimate opposition that there could be any legitimate debate about you know who we want to be as a people about as you said about you know the internal diversity of the demos and so on and so and so forth but again i would i would underline that this does not mean that therefore anything that populists say about let's say policy is therefore also necessarily completely based on lies or necessarily completely simplistic, such that in a more or less technocratic fashion, one could simply dismiss it.
0: No, you make the case very strongly in your book that many of the non-populist responses to populism, liberal responses to populism look remarkably like it. Exclusion, um, demonization, etc, cetera, etc, cetera, which is obviously not the way to go. But no, going back to this notion of the people, this sort of, you, you describe it in the book as, um, you, you call it a corpus mysticum, there's something mystical about this creation of the people that populists are involved with. And it, this, this talks, it seems to me, precisely to the danger that you first started off with. In a way, I keep on hearing um, it, through 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 the examples in your book I don't know if you have louis Xiv who says l'état c'est moi the state is me populists say le peuple c'est nous the people is us we are the people everything beyond that boundary that we identify doesn't count anymore and the and to precisely to the point that you make um the reason that that's so dangerous is that populism only functions within representative democracy it needs representative democracy to uh, to flourish because it needs, that validation of speaking for the people. You talk about a shadow of democracy. Populism as the shadow of democracy. What do you mean by that?
1: So I disagree with some of our colleagues who think that populism is inevitably associated with a desire for direct democracy or a completely different form of democracy than we know it today. Um, I think that populists are actually quite okay with the notion of representative democracy. They just think that as long as they aren't in power, we have the wrong representatives, namely corrupt ones, inauthentic ones, <laughs> people who don't truly represent, represent the people. Now, if you find this at all a plausible idea, then that also means that as long as we have representative democracy, somebody can come along and say, look, I and only I, or my party and only my party represents the people so therefore it's a permanent possibility and if you like a permanent shadow that we could not somehow magically get get rid of now that doesn't mean that you know there will always be exactly the same sort of level or amount of populism obviously there are sort of you know complicated historical factors as to why you sometimes might see more of it and sometimes you might see might see less but my my attempt was to say let's let's understand that this is very strongly tied to representative democracy that yes, it's true that very often, very often populists will say, let's have a referendum about something, uh, let's sort of let the people themselves speak. I mean, we can all very easily think of, think of examples of this kind of kind of rhetoric, but note that a referendum has a very particular meaning for populists. They don't really see a referendum as a forum to start a kind of open-ended conversation about what citizens actually want. They don't see this as a process where people might exchange views and where you know you never quite know what's gonna come out of it. Essentially for populists, the people's authentic will is always already known because it's deduced from their symbolic understanding of the people. So the people's role is not really to participate continuously in politics. It's rather to kind of tick the right box in the referendum that populists have suggested. And I would add that it's not an accident that if you look at countries where, especially right-wing populists have come to power, they have not transformed systems in in such a way that one could now say oh now there's you know much more involvement by the people more continuous participation uh more real consultation i mean there are sort of fake consultation exercises in Viktor Orban's Hungary for instance with you know highly manipulated uh processes highly misleading questions and and so on um but there's no no sort of attempt to make good on the promise which some observers attribute to populists, namely, to sort of truly open up our political processes to citizens on a more continuous basis.
0: I remember Gaddafi's claim that Libya was the most democratic country on earth because he'd instituted a network of people's councils at almost the village level across the country, which, of course, if you weren't a member of the party, you weren't invited to. So, um, yes, this co-option of the co-option of the state that you describe. This kind of corruption and clientelism that you also describe as core features of the practice of populism when they populists when they come to power, and the suppression of civil society, that those three key features that you describe in detail, the reason, in a sense, that they're so that populism is so pernicious is that they can claim in that destruction of democracy or the features of democracy that that those things represent, they can they can be destroyed in the name of the people. They can be destroyed because everything needs to feed back to this mythical, mystical, whatever it is, understanding of the people that they serve.
1: Yes, and I think this, this also explains why over the last couple of years, I think, we've seen the emergence of something that you might call a sort of populist art of governance, which includes the elements that you that you just described. Um, these practices are not exclusive to populists. So other parties you know, also engage in clientelism, corruption and so on. Um, what is indeed peculiar to populists is that they can do a lot of what they do with what from their point of view is a kind of moral argument. So when they replace what at least in theory should be neutral civil servants with basically cronies and, and party hacks and partisan actors, Um, they will essentially suggest, look, you know, who's the state for? Well, the state is there for the people, and we and only we represent the people. So if the party takes over the state, that's the same as the people appropriating the state. I mean, it's not really, but that's the claim. Or if you take this element of mass clientelism, again, plenty of other parties do this. Uh, In other words, they reward supporters, uh, they do them bureaucratic favors, they you know give them you know financial advantages and, and so on. Um, but populists do it in a particular way and maybe from their point of view with a kind of clean conscience because remember that from the get go not all people are the people. So if you essentially leave out whoever doesn't really support you in terms of you know let's say welfare benefits etc um there's nothing wrong here. That's actually how things should be because you know the other ones are essentially non-belonging and hence undeserving. And the point about civil society is essentially that in the populist imagination, it can't really be true that the people themselves would ever protest against their only authentic representatives. So what we very often see is a strategy which probably was pioneered by Vladimir Putin in our days, where immediately, one is told that whatever you see out there by way of, you know, demonstrations, uh, civil society activism, and so on and so forth, um, isn't really civil society at all. It's not really authentic people slash the real people. Uh, It's all manipulated. Uh, It's fake people, you might say. And then very predictably, the usual suspects are trotted out. So we're told that you know the CIA might be financing it, or George Soros, or you know all the all the usual suspects that, that are that are deployed in those in those contexts. But having said that, there are no limits to to you know conspiracy theorizing in this in this in this area. So if you think back, for instance, to the to the Gezi Park protest in 2013, eventually you know representatives of the Turkish in Turkey, government in, in Istanbul, yeah, yeah. essentially essentially uh, kept, started to suggest that you know, this was not proper Turkish citizens protesting the destruction of this park uh, in, in central, in central um, Istanbul and at Taksim. Um, no, uh, this was all organized by Lufthansa, the German airline, which was getting scared of competition from Turkey because remember Erdogan was building this fantastic new airport outside Istanbul and, and Turkish airlines was now gonna have more destination than anybody else and, and so on. So, All I'm saying is that that, uh, the the practices themselves, the the elements, if you like, of this populist out of governance are not exclusive to populists. You can find it elsewhere as well. What is peculiar is the way they fit together and the justifications, which are sometimes quite openly invoked for them. And if you allow me to add one more sentence, um, one of the things that I think we've also seen more clearly in recent years is that if you look at some of the regimes where basically right-wing populists are in power, so Modi in India, Erdogan in Turkey, Orban in Hungary, et cetera, um, you see really significant similarities. And occasionally observers then conclude, ah, this means that the rise of these figures can always be explained by the same factors or causes. But that doesn't necessarily follow at all. Um, I think individual national differences still matter a great deal.
0: What are the, what would be the common strands that you'd tease out between the political circumstances of Modi or well just Erdogan, ex- exactly Turkey.
1: exactly the kind of strategies uh, that I was just talking about right. in terms of in terms of what these right, right. people do to the state, how they treat civil society, how they uh, basically uh, malign the Crush the media
0: etc and, and yeah. so
1: on. Um, My my point is that that the similarities might be partly explained by the fact that these actors can also learn from each other. So once somebody works out a law that is facially neutral, but de facto serves to intimidate NGOs, which might be too critical, others can look at that and say, oh, great, you know, there's a way that we could do this, too. And, you know, to give you a more concrete example, if you look at what uh, Poland has been doing in recent years under Kaczynski, I think it's it's not conspiracy theorizing to assume that they basically learned one-to-one from Orban's Hungary of how you basically mislead the EU, how you play for time, how you engage in a certain kind of rhetoric of, you know, we are being victimized, our sovereignty is taking away, is taking away, and so on and, and so forth. So I'm just stressing these transnational learning effects um, because I think in general we might not have been paying enough attention to them. And secondly, and maybe more important, I think it undermines the comfortable idea that only democracies can learn and that anything that's more authoritarian sort of has a kind of cognitive disadvantage or uh, is somehow not as, as capable of looking around and looking at models and so on and so forth. I think that's not the case and we should not underestimate these figures accordingly.
0: That's fascinating and chilling. Um, but while we look at, therefore, the practice of politics across these populist regimes and uh, done in a rational, constructed, learnt way, I want to ask you a question that to many liberals seems obvious, but I think is we always have the wrong answer, which is from the outside, just as you've described, these populists seem profoundly cynical. I feel I can see what Aragon's up to, and all he wants is power. I feel I can see the same thing of Kaczynski or Orbán or Modi. This deep anti-democratic drive in them, this drive to power, seems cynical. But the way you describe it, and I think, is feels intuitively right. There's something else here. There is a these are there are real political desires. There is a real understanding of the people, the tools that they then use to um, enshrine their power, irrationally learned, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But the instinct is, in a sense, authentic? I would slightly
1: disagree with that. So first of all, I don't claim to know you know, what the real motivations are and what goes on in their minds and is it cynical or do they really believe what they say and so on and so forth. Um, on the one hand, it is true that at least in some cases, you can certainly make the argument that they picked up on real issues. And that not everything they ever said it was the point I was trying to make earlier, that not everything they ever said is necessarily a lie or uh, is simplistic and so on. So when, for instance, Erdogan you know, said that, look, there are parts of the Turkish population which don't seem to be properly recognized by, to put it in a very simplistic, but I think not incorrect way, a sort of old style Kemalist establishment, that wasn't a completely crazy idea. Or if let's say Chavez in, in Venezuela said, look, you know, this is a highly problematic system. Uh, we need to do something that you know, points us in a more egalitarian direction. This was not you know, obviously an illegitimate uh, crazy thing to crazy thing to, to argue. Um, whether they had sort of the grand plan to become authoritarians all along, I don't claim to, I don't claim to know. Um, Clearly, there's always an element of path dependency, there's always a dynamism, there's always a question of how then other actors react or don't don't react to them. But one thing that maybe has also become clearer in recent recent years is that what all of these people also have in common is an ability to really polarize society, to essentially divide a society in two and force citizens to make a sort of choice of you're either with us or you're against us. And if the other side wins, the non-populist side, this somehow should be understood as an existential peril, danger to our way of life, maybe to people personally in certain ways. So that has been a very, very effective strategy in in some circumstances. And that's also, I think, an area where liberals have had a hard time to think of strategies of how to counter uh, that particular art of, of of dividing a society. And this is even more disturbing for many of us and find a response to the fact that if some of our colleagues who study these things empirically are right, then it's the case that at least some citizens are well aware that some of these leaders are clearly damaging democracy, but they are basically willing to put up with it. And that might be because of economic benefits. It might be because they really believe that let's say a white Christian uh, way of life in America is, you know, existentially threatened by dangerous minorities, you know, could be different, could be different things. Um, But that's something that I think gets us out of thinking as sometimes people do that, oh no, everybody is just deluded and people don't understand that democracy is being destroyed. I think in some cases, people may well be aware of it but in a highly polarized environment in an environment where populist leaders have succeeded in convincing people that it's really us or them it's a much harder thing to 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 get out of this kind of this kind of mindset
0: well polarization itself seems like an element of of populism and as we polarize all over the European Union and all over the US that process of polarization is one of dehumanizing the other side and one of refusing to accept that the other side is intellectually or morally uh, uncorrupted and including them in the political process. We do this more and more. It may even be a feature of especially two-party democracy that we do radicalize and sort into these buckets. More generally though, um, what do you think are the, I want to ask what the causes of populism are, but perhaps the better question is what the kind of, what's the fertile ground upon which it grows?
1: So I'm going to disappoint you in, in not really committing <laughs> to a sort of universal, universal answer. I mean, as, as mentioned earlier, this is, of course, what we, all, we would all love. You know, we would all love to know the answer, ideally in just 140 characters or even less if, if possible. And the very pedantic uh, remark I'm going to make is that national context and historical paths matter a great deal. Yes, some of the constellations are similar. Yes, you you need a kind of constituency where a certain talk of grievances you know, will resonate. Uh, you need political systems where if you complain about them as unrepresentative, as somehow featuring systemic problems where that sort of thing sound, you know, seems to resonate and seems to have some plausibility. So I'm not saying, oh, it's completely arbitrary or we can never say anything. But the kind of identification of a single macro cause—oh, it's all culture. Oh, no, it's all the economy. I think ultimately is very is very implausible. And if you think of just specific examples, so to suggest, for instance, that the the causes or the the factors that led to the rise of Jean-Marie Le Pen in in the 80s are somehow identical to you know the the factors that helped. Um, someone like Erdogan in in Turkey, or Kaczynski in Poland, and so on, uh, just strikes me as deeply, deeply implausible. Um, So in that sense, I think think there is no kind of uh, easy policy fix in the way that again liberals sometimes desire. Uh, It's a mistake in general to think that the best answer to the rise of populism is a sort of technocratic mindset where we constantly lecture people on how irrational they are and how simplistic and irrational some of these policy suggestions by populists happen happen to be. Because ultimately that, that amounts to responding to one anti-pluralism, populism, with another anti-pluralism of a different kind to be sure, but still one where you basically then tell people there's only one rational solution to a particular policy challenge, and if you happen to disagree with it, you basically reveal yourself to be irrational, just as much as those who disagree with the populace reveal themselves as traitors to the country, people who don't truly really belong, and so
0: on and so forth. You flag three things in, um, in, in your discussion in the book uh, of some of the causes, or perhaps not the causes, but, but sort of ideas behind them. Um, one is the demise of the political party, um, another is this idea that um, there are some fundamental promises that democracy hasn't really delivered upon. Um, and, and the third is this idea of the boundary problem that we've got in political science generally, this problem of identifying who the people are, are anyway. But just to, to pick up on your last point here, the technocratic sort of universalism versus the populist universalism. There is, certainly across the European Union, you describe the European Union being founded very much with a fear of purely popular will, because of course it emerges after the, uh, after the end of the Second World War. There is almost a tussle there between anti-democratic, if you want technocrats, and, um, and overly democratic populists who take from the ballot box a mandate to do anything they want with the... Uh, the in, the mediators of the state, the law, the media, um, and civil society around it. Is that, a f- do, you, do you think that's a feature of European populism alone? Do you think it's a feature of American populism?
1: So let me give you a very clear answer, yes and no. Um, so what is true is this historical trajectory where after the second world war, there was fear of the people themselves Often based on the view that somehow the people themselves had brought fascists to power, which in and of itself you might say is historically highly dubious. I mean, remember that that you know Mussolini didn't really march on Rome; he came by a sleeper car because traditional elites had invited him to, to take over. And a somewhat similar story can actually be told about told about Hitler. So I'm not saying this is you know necessarily an accurate re- reflection of history, but it was one that did lead in a, if you like, somewhat elitist direction in Europe after the war, where there was a particular concern about constraining the popular will. So I would stick with that, with that characterization. What I would not say is that, oh, and therefore we should sort of take populists at their word and and really concede to them that yes, they really truly want to empower the people. As I was trying to say earlier, that's actually not really what 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 they want to do. But of course they can benefit from an impression that in Europe the people aren't as powerful as they should be. That's what I mean by sort of systemic weaknesses or a sort of sense that yes, maybe there is something problematic or flawed about democratic systems as as we, as we have them. So again, I'm not saying that oh, everything is completely random and, and, and arbitrary, and this would be one factor, but I think we should not, you know, therefore conclude that the people that the populists really are the authentic representatives of the of the people, of the people them, themselves.
0: And Verna, can I uh, end with asking you where you think populism is today, both in the US. and across Latin America and in the West, and perhaps more broadly, are we are we moving into a populist phase of history? Is it the end with the demise of Donald Trump?
1: So I don't really do predictions, especially not about the future. Um, <laughs> but I think I think that um, what we nowadays sometimes hear, namely that, oh, the pandemic will somehow spell the end of populism i think is far too simplistic it's true that leading populists like trump and bolsonaro have uh, horrendously failed in dealing in dealing with this dealing with this emergency but i would be reluctant to say that they are necessarily typical of populism as such. I mean, this goes back to a point we talked about before. If if you think that populism, yes, is about distrusting science, hating experts, always having super simplistic solutions, then yeah, that, that's maybe a plausible story, but that's not the position I've been trying to, to advocate. And yes, there's a reason why Trump and Bolsonaro, for instance, immediately went down the path of cultural war this goes back to the point of you know trying to reduce bulk questions to questions of belonging you know real men will not wear masks etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, so yeah there is a, there is somewhat of a connection but other populists um, have tried to take the pandemic more seriously uh, it wasn't a sort of inevitable outcome that people went down this particular went down this particular path so I'm somewhat reluctant to to now commit to the view, that, oh yes, you know, now it's necessarily, necessarily over. But neither is it the case um, that this will now sort of be with us uh, through, throughout the century, in the way that some of our colleagues have already declared the 21st century to, to be the, the, the century of, of populism somehow. I'm I would be reluctant to, to endorse that um, as well, because again, going back to the very pedantic point, um, the the different national situations really are too different. It's it's certainly worrying that this kind of populist art of governance is spreading. It doesn't mean that these rulers are somehow invincible or that nothing can be done, Uh, but it's still a danger that we might sometimes underestimate them. But I would be reluctant to say that there's something in our political moment as such, which necessarily, Favors populist populist outcomes. So I'm sorry if this is very unsatisfying. You know, obviously it's it's you know much more satisfying to have you know a a super snappy slogan. The you know the future will be X or Y. But here we are.
0: Jan Werner, this has been fascinating. Um, we'll have very detailed notes in the uh, in the in the show notes of uh, of the book with links to the, to the to the book itself. I'm tremendously grateful that you've taken the time to talk to us. Thanks so much for being with us.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
0: That was On Opinion, the Palia podcast. Check out our show notes if you'd like to dig deeper into this episode's theme and join me at palia.com to explore all the world's opinions. To stay up to date with new episodes or get further insights from our guests, subscribe to On Opinion. The Palia podcast, wherever you listen, and follow us on social media at AskPalia. All our links are in the show notes, and if you enjoyed this episode, please rate us and leave us a review. Thank you for listening.